Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizade, and I am so excited today to be talking with Evie Shockley, um, who is a poet and a scholar and critic that I've long admired, and I've been um, trying to get onto the podcast now for a little bit, and we finally made it happen, and I couldn't be more thrilled. Um, the, the poem that Evie has chosen to share with us, talk about with us today, is by the poet Ed Roberson, a contemporary poet. Um, and the poem is from his book, City Eclogues. The poem itself is called Open, Back Up, Breadth of Field, um, a, a title that has some interesting um, typographical features embedded within it, so that might not be audible. But so between open and back up, there's a, a slash. Breadth of Field is a parenthetical. We can talk about that as we go. Um, of course, there will be a link um, to the poem or an and or an image of the poem that I that will make available for you in the episode notes, and um, of course more links and things like that to come in the newsletter that'll be coming out with this episode. But first, let me tell you more about our very distinguished guest, Evie Shockley. Evie is the Zora Neale Hurston Distinguished Professor of English at Rutgers University. And she's the author of several books, um, including just a a hugely important critical book called Renegade Poetics, Black Aesthetics and Formal Innovation in African-American Poetry, which came out from the University of Iowa Press in 2011. That book is concerned with what might sound like a simple question. It's an intriguing one. Um, it's it's a, a beautiful instance, I think, of a scholar um, taking something that we all do, I don't know, we all, many of us do sort of reflexively without thinking about it and saying, what's going on when we do this? So the question that she's asking there is, what do we mean when we designate behaviors, values, forms of expression, poems, for instance, as quote unquote, black? What, are, what do we mean when we use that term? And, and one of the things that is so appealing to me about the book is that she answers that question sort of patiently and descriptively, that she's um, not trying to um, uh, theoretically define a category and then um, seeking out examples. Rather, she's um, working inductively from, from the examples that she's drawn to and um, methodically um, and sort of lovingly uh, articulating a definition out of the evidence at hand. So that's a book that has readings of poems by people like Gwendolyn Brooks, um, Sonia Sanchez, Harriet Mullen, Anne Spencer, Will Alexander, and today's poet, um, Ed Roberson. So that's very exciting. Um, Evie is also the, um, as I said, a poet and the author of um, four uh, well, n- now we have the a very exciting news, actually, five full-length collections of, of poetry. L- let me tell you their titles. The Gorgon Goddess, A Half-Red Sea, The New Black, Semi-Automatic, and Evie tells me tomorrow, though um, that tomorrow will have become a yesterday by the time this episode comes out. In any case, just now, just out, um, a new book of poems called Suddenly We, um, which is out from Wesleyan University Press, um, a press that Evie's had a long um, relationship with and a 
um, and a really important press for poetry and poetry studies. Um, as I as I sort of gestured towards in talking about Evie's book, um, uh, her critical book, that is, um, the 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 aspect of her um, scholarship that I find most um, exciting and um, endearing, really, is is what I take to be a kind of um, critical modesty. Um, for me, that's like almost the highest praise you can give. It may sound, might not sound like it, but for me, really, that is such an important idea. It, she takes seriously a responsibility to describe what she sees. Um, and then she builds slowly, surely, something really beautiful and new and, and places it in the world of the reader, in our world. Um, so just to take, for instance, um, and it's it's almost unfair for me to do this because what I'm about to do is to spoil the plot of um, of an article that she's written um, on Ed Roberson in the journal um, Kalaloo. Um, I'm, I'm spoiling the plot by reading you the last sentence of that article, which I just found so beautiful. Um, and, and, you know, as we'll see, part of Evie's interest in Roberson, I think, is in the sense in which he's um, he's both participating in and contributing to something that we can describe as black aesthetics or 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 a tradition of black poetry. Now, he's also, I want to be careful with the conjunction I use there. Do I mean and or but or you know? He is also. I'll I'll leave it at that. A nature poet. Um, um, and participating in a tradition of poetry that has come perhaps to be called um, eco-poetics. Um, so, you know, in the article, Evie is thinking very carefully about how Roberson is navigating those dual commitments and, and, form, and ways of being as a poet. Here's how that article ends. Neither, quote, recognizably black nor, quote, recognizably green, end quote, Roberson's poetry works out the structures of language able to reveal to us the verdant shadows of an undivided world. Just took my breath away. It's so beautiful. Um, and it's, um, and it's typical of the, um, of the sensitivity and care and intelligence that you find everywhere in Evie Shockley's work. So I'm just so thrilled to have Evie Shockley here to talk about Ed Roberson. What could be better than this? Evie, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm fine, although I am, um, even though I've been listening to this podcast and knew what to expect, uh, it is still um, quite lovely and awkward to to hear so many <laughs> nice things said all at once. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> you deserve them. I, I'm, I'm sure they weren't nice enough. That's, um, but yes, it's my, it's my pleasure. Um, it's really an honor for me to have you here. Uh, the pleasure um, is mine for sure. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, it's it's funny when I when I started this project, I thought, well, I have you know, like our world is a small enough one. Poetry, the poetry world, the poetry studies world, perhaps even smaller. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll ask these various friends of mine or people I've known for years and years to come on, and we'll see how it goes. And then, and then at some point, I noticed that you, who's you know, someone I've been reading and admiring, and I don't know, maybe we've met briefly at a conference or something like that, but um, 
that was about it at that point that you were listening to the podcast. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, it's really in the world. Evie Shockley's listening. And and so then I invited you. And um and then we had a heck of a time, Evie, uh, with you um trying to um choose a poem for this occasion. And Ooh. I I hope I can, um, well, I, I wonder if I can invite you just to talk for a minute about, you know, what was it that made that um, a kind of challenging prospect or, or what did the process of like thinking about what poem do I want to talk about? What did that look like for you? What did it reveal to you about your relationship to poems or poetry? Mm. You know, I, any of that, Evie, what was it like? What a wonderful uh, question and an opportunity in a sense. Um, you know, the, Whenever I'm asked to, to choose one thing, <laughs> a favorite poem or a favorite poet or, you know, in this case, uh, one mm-hmm. poem to feature and, and shine a light on and, sh- you know, mm-hmm. give love, as, as we say, it, you know, I, I immediately am paralyzed because mm-hmm. I, I think there's something about maybe at the intersection of being a poet and a scholar that compounds the the kind of factors that I'm thinking through. Mm. I'm thinking about um, what could how in what way could this be a teachable moment? Like who who doesn't get attention? Right. Um, I'm also thinking about well who who do who will people um, recognize and want to tune in to listen to. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about representation. I want, you know, I want to lean on my strengths in African-American poetry, but I'm also like, well, maybe I could talk about something that, you know, I feel less expert about. And, and I think I, you know, I told you that I even picked a poem, even going with a poet whose work I know and love, I picked a poem that I don't feel like I have a definitive reading of, but right. more like a tentative reading of. And you know, because that process of exploration is fun for me. So I was like, mm-hmm. an older poet, a living poet, or, you know, a, a historical poet. I thought very hard about Anne Spencer. Um, I thought about my love of Gwendolyn Brooks. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought about um, another poet who was also a, a strong mentor for me, Lucille Clifton. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was all over the place um, with so many different criteria that, that, you know, I didn't know at first what would be the deciding factor, but in the end, you know, Ed Roberson is, is both living, but, but of a, of a generation that um, I think can get buried sometimes under Mm. the, the plethora of amazing young poets that we have right. in the world now. And, and right. by young, I mean, you know, possibly at this point, uh, two or three generations <laughs> right. that are writing um, be- who are younger than Roberson, right? Um, right. Born, I think, in um, 1939. I found it yes. useful to have some dates in mind. Right. Okay. So, yeah, Absolutely. Uh-huh. Born in 1939. So, um you know, of, of my parents' generation. And right. it's, you know, I, I thought this is a way to, to sort of um, look backwards without looking beyond the contemporary, um, someone we can still enjoy and 
who mm. can uh, have his flowers uh, mm-hmm. while he's able to enjoy them, that kind of thing. Well, that's a lo- that's all um, lovely and fascinating. As you were talking, it occurred to me that, um, well, I don't get invited on podcasts where I have to choose a poem to talk <laughs> about. But, but the kinds of um, thinking that you were going through do remind me of the kinds of questions one asks when designing a syllabus or... Um, or even sort of choosing things to write about um, in one's own criticism or scholarship or whatever. But that that sort of question of feeling a kind of responsibility, a desire exactly. to um, take advantage of one's expertise, but a desire also to feel interested and like you're learning something, even as you're the teacher, you know. Exactly. Um, it's I mean, hard that- to balance, yeah. That, that is such an apt um, comparison, the syllabus question, because I cruelly or, you know, or not, I, I teach a signature course at Rutgers um, on Black poetry. Mm. And I, I never teach it the same way. I mean, yeah. sometimes I use the same sort of thematic angle. Um, this semester, as it happens, I'm working for the maybe the second or third time with um, Camille Dungy's Black Nature. Oh, she's amazing. Um, yes, she is. And that anthology is a treasure. I'm mm. working with that anthology as the kind of spine of the course. But mm. every time I teach, whether I'm, you know, working with it within a similar theme or, um, you know, exploring something like innovative Black poetry or um, the Black radical poetry tradition or, you know, so on and so right. forth. I teach it a different way. I the syllabus is redesigned. Even working within an anthology, I choose different poems. So you're so, making more work for yourself, but you're doing I, it for a reason. Yeah. I need to be as as excited about the poems as I hope the students will be. I get it. I get yeah. it. You know, you want to have that experience in the classroom or anytime you read a poem or even when you write about it, like you're it's as though you're doing it for the first time or you're learning something then and there, not yeah. simply kind of delivering a canned line about something that you've um, learned by um, by rote or whatever. So I get it. Um, would you be willing, um, I guess, having said that, um, and to the extent that perhaps Roberson doesn't occupy as quite as visible a place. I mean, he's, uh, he's by no means a, a, an obscure poet or a minor poet. I mean, he's celebrated, um, um, and, and quite accomplished, but for listeners who maybe don't know his work very well, is there a way you have Evie of giving us just, um, a brief sense of where, um, Ed Roberson fits in to your, like the story you have in mind of like, 20th century or second half of the 20th century into 21st century American poetry or um, a black poetic tradition or a tradition of nature poetry. I mean, obviously, these are questions that we will be talking about in terms of how they make themselves visible within the poem that we're that we're going to be talking about today. But I just mean as a kind of just so people have something to -hmm. begin with. Um, Could you situate Roberson for us a bit? Yes. And of course, I should have uh, like almost a a script ready on this, but let's see what I can do. Mm. Um, (laughs) I like unscripted better. (laughs) (laughs) Ed Roberson. So he's at the juncture of, um, you know, two or three different um, 
movements, you might say, um, within Black, uh, African-American, American poetics. Um, so for one thing, and I think the less often reckoned with thing, um, he, pub- he published his first book. I don't know. I can't remember w- what you mentioned already, but he published his first book, um, When Thy King is a Boy, in 1970. Mm. Um, and his second in 1975, which if you are a student of um, African-American poetry um, or Black studies uh, in, in the U.S., you know those dates um, coincide with the Black arts movement. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so he's someone who was, I think he's described it as not uh, on the front lines, but uh, in the amen corner huh. uh, uh-huh. of the Black arts movement, um, writing in ways that were thinking through his own very sort of uh, unique, uh, really idiosyncratic um, poetic style about what black poets might need or want, right. um, or, or feel compelled to write about and how, right? right? So, so that's one thing he was formed by, you know, um, by, uh, beginning his poetic career during the black arts movement. Um, he's also a poet who, as you already gestured towards, um, mm. fits well within the, uh, the, the tradition of uh, echopoetics, ecopoetics. Mm-hmm. I never know which way, which way is that pronounced? <laughs> Economics, echopoetics. Fair um, enough. <laughs> um, he, I'm Southern, so pronunciation yeah. is always a challenge. Um, <laughs> he, he, um, and the, the sentence that you read from my essay about his work kind of um, gestures towards this. He mm-hmm. is not in the romantic poetic tradition mm-hmm. that um, that uh, romanticizes, for lack of a better word, that idealizes mm-hmm. nature um, mm-hmm. and that sees it as, you know, sort of the other to mankind, uh, the, the place where we go to... Um, learn about ourselves or rejuvenate ourselves or any of those kind of more um, instrumentalizing forms of nature writing, mm-hmm. but um, comes into visibility, I think, with poets who are trying to challenge that model of nature poetry. And, um, you know, what I learned from him very, very um particularly and importantly for me, like a very fundamental takeaway for me from Ed Roberson's work is that there is no nature that is separate from Uh culture, so to speak. Um, That as another uh, scholar would say, Carol and Finney, if you're breathing, you're in nature. (laughs) So that's that's the whole world, the whole earth. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to take that, um, that understanding uh, to heart is something that his work continually challenges me to do. And it puts him in conversation with, you know, a lot of people from, you know, from people like Gary Snyder yep. and Mary, yep. uh, Mary Oliver to, um, 
you know, Camille Dungy, for example. Yes, right, right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Then I think the other thing I would say is that he is really important for the Black experimental, uh, innovative Black poetics tradition. There, you know, Black radical poetics tradition. A lot of ways we might talk about it, right. uh, and just an important uh, innovator in language whose work presents itself in some ways as difficult and you uh-huh. should see my air quotes. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I think we, yeah, we hear them. We hear them. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it can look and, and actually feel difficult. Um, yeah. But for me in a, in the best possible ways, never mm-hmm. difficult for the sake of difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, always. Um, I've heard him talk about it. He visited a class of mine one time when I was teaching his work, and a student asked him why he <laughs> made his poems so difficult. Why, he why did you do this to us? <laughs> yes. Why, why are you trying to be difficult? Why not just say what you mean? Yes. It's like, this is me saying what I mean. Right. What I mean is complicated. Yes. Right? Yes. So, yes. Uh, I could well, go on and on, but I'll well, stop. no, but the, I mean, and well, and um, you know, you'll get a chance to, which which I'm really <laughs> excited for here. Um, but I have so many thoughts. And I uh, and on the on the other hand, I'm um, wanting to balance those thoughts, ex- my desire to express some of them with uh, <laughs> a, a feeling that we ought to get onto the poem. But yes. maybe I could just say briefly that um, I think some of what you were describing as his um, investment in being a nature poet, but maybe not in the sense that one ordinarily thinks of nature poetry as a kind of romanticizing or idealizing or separating out from the way we live. You know, like nature is something we encounter when we go on a hike, but you know, not when we're going to work or whatever. Um, Some of that is evident already. I take it in the title of the book that the poem you've chosen is from city eclogues, right? So an eclogue, you know, might suggest a kind of nature and uh, an an interest in nature as, as a topic. Mm -hmm. And, and this gets me to thinking also about how, um, to the extent that, you know, we can't help but be in nature. We're always in nature. I mean, we are, after all, natural beings. Yes. Um, that um, maybe maybe some of what constitutes nature poetry as such is not so much um, subject matter as it is a, like a way of seeing the world or a, a way of describing the world. Well, um, well, yeah, I'm thinking back to, I mean, it's a, it's a, a different point entirely, but in a recent conversation on the podcast with, um, Eric Lindstrom, he was offering the idea that James Schuyler was an ekphrastic poet, even when he wasn't describing a painting, like <laughs> right. he looked at the world as though it were a painting and was describing it in, in something like those terms. And maybe there's something kind of analogous going on with the kind of nature poetry that we're interested in here. That makes sense to me. Well, let's get to the poem. Let's. Um, I'm. I'm really eager to hear it. Um, Evie, um, would you be willing to read this poem to us and um, and maybe remind our listeners too, if you weren't going to already, of of its title? Not a problem. And I again should have uh, knew to anticipate this and haven't practiced how I'm going to read this. So this is going to be interesting. <laughs> That's good. Um, so uh, this is a poem from. Um, one of the sections of 
the book City Eclogue uh, called Ornithologies, just to, you know, because Roberson tends to write in series and sequence. And so um, how his poems are lodged is, is important to the reading, although we're not going to, I promise I'm not going to try to do all that <laughs> in this conversation. But um, mm-hmm. this poem is called Open, Back Up, Breadth of Field. To state for the case of poetry, the most recent open field I've crossed would have to be the the block-long park lost in the midst of the security of local campus-mounted police. Black people get stopped regularly to show they have university ID by the ones in cars. The auspice of the animal mounted doesn't fly. Really, neither do the comic cops. Nature, life and limb gone through divestiture of place from point, reads to the lie of open breasts of field, Elysian, nor the narrow badge number of the gun. Thank you so much, Evie. Um, So that was open back up. Breath of Field by Ed Roberson, read by um, Evie Shockley. Evie, um, I was sort of glad to hear you say that you hadn't prepared a way to read it, although you may have been disconcerted um, in you know, noticing that um, just before you read. I said I was glad because it occurs to me, well, maybe, you know, just like we were talking about with respect to teaching or whatever before, maybe there was something new for you in the reading then since you hadn't rehearsed it or whatever. Um, what you know, we'll want to back up. Um, sorry, no pun intended. That's in the title, but we'll want to, we'll want to, you know, in some way or another, make our way from the top of the poem to the bottom of the poem eventually. But just to, to take for a minute, the more kind of global view, like what are you noticing about the poem as you read it here and here and now today? Well, you know, what comes out, uh, anytime you attempt to read any Ed Roberson poem, um, is the fact that he writes in a kind of two steps forward, two steps back Mm. kind of syntax. Um, And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is that he, he's writing in sentences that are somehow also including fragments within them that overlap so that within each sentence, there are, there are bits that, he wants or seems to want one to understand as mm-hmm. little units within the sentence and those units overlap each other so that your, uh-huh. your brain is moving backwards and forwards, even though your, your reading is linear uh, necessarily. Yeah. Can't um, help but be, I guess. Right. Um, can't help yeah. but be. Although, you know, sometimes I think about, you know, or teaching, I might read a line, stop, go back, you know, and, and uh-huh. perform that. Um, which is another part of, I didn't plan how I wanted to read this poem. I think it only does yeah. justice to read it straight, quote unquote, the first yeah. time. Well, but, I guess um, we'll have yeah. we'll have other chances to read. Um, clearly, we'll be reading little bits of it out loud again to remind ourselves. Um, y- you know, um, I I hear what you're saying so, um, so um, distinctly. And it occurs to me like, so for people who aren't looking... Um, the poem, well, I'll just say this to begin with. It begins with two stanzas that are each four lines long. Mm-hmm. That 
that first stanza doesn't have any punctuation in it. Um, Though I think a careful reading like the one you gave us, you know, you could almost, as a reader, you're almost like enjoined to like silently insert commas here or there to make sense of the way the phrases want to hang together to state comma for the case of poetry comma maybe you'd want to you know you're doing something like that in your mind as you read um but it's interesting that he's not giving you that right so so maybe the effect of that is what to like slow you down as a reader or to open up multiple directions you know i think talk about that i definitely think he he uses punctuation sparingly um just enough to keep you sort of uh, a little bit tethered to the ground. Uh, maybe even mm-hmm. tethered is not the right word, but but to to give you a true north, I guess in mm-hmm. the in the the syntactical logic. But but he's very interested uh, in leaving as many possible readings open as possible. Mm-hmm. Very much, very much. So. Um, there, I think even when there is ultimately one reading that makes sense, quote unquote, right. There are processes of thought that go into arriving at that single reading that he might be encouraging us to, to, to literally go through, Mm. um, so, so yeah, I, I think uh, maybe that it does end up circling back to both of the, to slow mm-hmm. the reader down, um, yeah. as well as to, to leave open multiplicity uh, of meaning. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe to attend to that multiplicity, you've got to slow down or something, or slowing down makes it possible to hear the multiplicity. Um, Absolutely. But to so work that- with the language. Yeah, well, let's 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 do some of that. Let's work with the language here. Um, so, like I said, there's a four-line stanza, though we haven't gotten to the end of a sentence until we get to the fifth line that begins the second stanza. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just, you know, I think we, you know, it's a short enough poem. I don't think we can hear the language often enough, you know, especially exactly. for people who aren't looking at it. So, I'll read that first sentence again, and then I'm curious about you know, maybe you could walk us through some of what you think is like a primary kind of way of making sense of the sentence and then maybe mm-hmm. alert us to some of the sort of lurking or secondary kinds of um, meanings that are accumulating here. Okay. Mm-hmm. To state for the case of poetry, the most recent open field I've crossed would have to be the block long park lost in the midst of the security of local campus mounted police. Yes. Then we get to the period. Right. All right. So much packed in, right? So much. Um, that third line in particular is hard to read. Um, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. It's just that's right. a challenge. You've got to, you know, anyway. Let's, you got to get I, your mouth I, I, I want to hear what it. you think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so stop me when I get too in the weeds. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not going to stop you, Evie. <laughs> <laughs> To state for the case of poetry. So already I feel like um, there's this, it's not exactly, but it, it is the echo of a kind of legal or courtroom discourse to state for the case, right? Mm-hmm. Evidence. 
Um, mm-hmm. But the case of poetry, um, which is one context among others that, you know, one might uh, be offering evidence, right? But to state for the case of poetry, that's where I'm, I'm going immediately. The most which suggests recent- that what like poetry is like um, requires a defense or something or right. That, that yeah. someone's been making the case against it or, you know, that's true for versus against, but also, um, yeah, as opposed to in the case of poetry. I love that. Mm. I love that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, the, This is this is exactly the kind of doubleness that he specializes yes, in. So yes, yes good, I love good. that. I love that. Great. Oh, this is well. Fun. Let's let's sit with that thought. And yeah, keep going though. I interrupted. I'm sorry. Not at all. Not at all. Well, this is a, a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, the most recent open field I've crossed. So with that, if we weren't already thinking about it from the title. Open field poetry. This is a, a poem that's in conversation with Charles Olson and projective verse, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's tell, uh, tell people who don't know anything about anything. Uh, just, yeah. just, I don't know. Charles Olson, projective verse. What does that have to do with open field? You know, maybe just uh, that. Yeah. Right. Right. So Charles Olson, uh, mid-century American mm-hmm. poet, white American poet, for what mm-hmm. it's worth. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, writes this essay called Projective Verse in which he um, he is involved in trying to make a case, I think, um, mm-hmm. for a shift in American poetics um, from, away from closed form poetry mm-hmm. to what he calls open field poetry or composition by field. Um, and he's interested in a poetics that discovers itself line by line in the process of its making that's propelled, um, that sees the page as you might say an open field. So one thing to note just right off the bat there is that for Olson and perhaps for the way of thinking that Olson might sort of stand in for here as an example of field in that sense would be metaphor like, mm-hmm. a, or it's a metaphorical way of speaking. Um, Absolutely. In the same way, maybe that we talk about um, a scholarly field or, um, and, and so Roberson is playing with that way of talking, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Roberson's full of jokes, um, mm-hmm. lots of puns, um, maybe not quite as mm. uh, punny as, Harriet Mullen and, and <laughs> sadly myself, but, uh, but yeah, there, there are all kinds of plays like that. And I appreciate you bringing that out. So the, um, the, the idea of a field, uh, in poetry, which is the page as a, you know, being compared to the field mm-hmm. becomes, um, more literal in his, in his stanza. Um, he's, he wants us to think about an actual, something like an open field uh, mm-hmm. in the physical, spatial, um, earth-like sense, right? Um, right. And what happens then if, is, of course, he shifts that from field to park. Um, right. 
Yeah. And what's, I, it, what's at stake in the shift from field to park? Like, what's the difference between a park and a field in your that matters here, Evie? That matters. I mean, so this is the, a poem in the book City Eclogue, which, you know, Eclogue, uh, as you mm. said, refers to a kind of pastoral poetry and uh, a poetry that that opposes the city and the countryside mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the rural. Um, Roberson's book is all about um, sort of showing us the maybe the pastoral within the city or mm. just breaking down the the idea that that city and Eklock have nothing to do with each other, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. an open field in a city context, um, you know, the closest thing you're going to get, the, the, the analog is mm-hmm. a park, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so it's, but it's interesting because it's a block long park. Right. Which already circumscribes. Yes. This idea of openness. And I think Roberson's really interested in the, the 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 contrast between open field and you know right. this more circumscribed. It's something um, that might look like nature, but is being asked to fit the confines of the urban environment. You know, uh, and is planned and is um, delimited. Yeah. It, yes and no, because here, see, this is the this is the trouble with talking about Ed Roberson's poetry is we don't really have the language for it. Mm. It is not to oppose the block park, the block long park to nature. It is to say, this is what nature looks like in the city. Mm-hmm. And once we're aware of it being circumscribed in the city, we have to then recognize that a field, an open field is also circumscribed, mm. quote unquote, in nature. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, you know, that it's a clearing, that it has edges, but there is a difference in scale. And, and I think that becomes important for, you know, just thinking about what human activity, as opposed to the activity of other animals, might mean for this planet, right? Yeah. And we get to other animals in, in a minute, but, um, mm-hmm. but l- let me just, because um, I want to stay for, for a moment on the Block Long Park. Um, mm-hmm. Because, um, well, a couple of things. When you said edges, you know, my mind is immediately going to like the edges, um, formally speaking, of the poem, like the line line breaks and yes. and the way a stanza is also like a block like section of a text, right? Yeah. Um, and here, I guess the description or the the image sort of spills over that um, stanza break too. Very um, nice. But, uh, but also in that phrase, you know, like I said, the third line is hard to read, would have to be the block long park lost. I think it's hard to read in part because of the those monosyllables that come at the end. Spondies. And you're not sure, <laughs> you know, like, I guess if I were to insert punctuation to make it easier, but less interesting. So it's good that the punctuation's not there. It, You know, you'd want to put a hyphen between block and long because exactly. it's, it's a block long park. And then it's lost also, which makes me think of, you know, it's like as soon as it's like, you know, the, well, so, okay, so the park is like a field, but it's a delimited one. But even as a park, it's lost. Yes. It, like it was there, but has been transformed into something else now. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, you're setting up um, one of the things that we can foreshadow um, for the end of the poem, 
mm. um, which is perhaps we have an echo here of Paradise Lost. Yes. Right? <laughs> you yeah. know, um, um, so which is nice because you could think even the, the block long park has a, a paradisical, paradisical feel to it, right? Um, um, but but it, it has been lost. And I, I do I really do love that that um, mouthful of sounds at the end yeah. and how how the vowels are working with each other. It's not just that they're um, these spondies or these these yeah, monosyllabic yeah. words, but it's the ah oh ah oh, you know. Yes. Of the and, of the, and the, the vowels. And the conf- that's absolutely right. And the confusion one feels about their like syntactical or grammatical relation to each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you kind of don't know how to, until you've read the whole thing, you don't know how to read it. Um, exactly. So now I guess we should say what, what the park has been lost to. Right. right? In the um, lost in the midst of the security stands a break of local campus mounted police. And so it's, um, ah, so, so, so mm. lost in the mist as opposed mm-hmm. to midst with the D, mm-hmm. um, it, it's something ah. I hear in the language. Oh right? yeah, I missed um, that. Thank you. Yeah. Oh my God, it's his. It's this is all Ed. Um, lost in the mist, um, but then um, the the mist or the midst is of security, right? Mm-hmm. And and we have a moment, a whole not just a line break, but a stanza break to to sit with the idea of a park being lost in the midst of, secu- of, of the security. Yeah. Which for well, that, me immediately begs, who's security, right? Yeah. I mean, it does make it seem, at least for the first stanza, a little bit like Paradise Lost. Like, you know, we're secure, we, you know, we're, and it's, it's sort of in the midst of security, we're kicked out of Eden or something, you know? Exactly. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. So, but then when you, when you, Come down to the next stanza, mm-hmm. um, the security of local campus mounted police. I mean, one one possible reading is that the police are secure, <laughs> which is right. counterintuitive. But, you know, usually it's the police providing security. But Well, but in theory, of, right? Yeah. yeah. In theory, in yeah. theory, totally in theory. Um, yes. It's, but we get this... Um, this set of ideas in one sentence, one stanza in a, in a line, um, mm-hmm. a line more that, that have us thinking about openness versus constraint, um, mm. presence versus loss, um, security, you know, are, is this, is this um, boundary about um, keeping things in or keeping things out? Right? right, all of that introduced in one right. sentence, and then suddenly, as the next sentence begins, at least to my mind, Evie, the um, yeah, I mean, at least in one sense, it gets easier to follow, easier to read. It's like a much more plain spoken kind of um, could might not you know might you might not even recognize it as poetic language if it weren't mm-hmm. in a poem. Black Very people get stopped regularly to show they have university ID, you know, at least up to there, and maybe. Mm-hmm even up to by the ones in cars. Um, so yeah, like how are you hearing the sort of um, juxtaposition of that kind of plain spoken language um, and shift even in um, topic or whatever, like what, what's happening for you in that shift? Um, 
It's, I mean, it's interesting. I, I process it at the level of sound, the, the, the sort of, uh, difficulty, quote unquote, of, of giving voice to the words, um, moves away. And we, mm. we move into this speech that, um, that comes off the tongue more easily and also maybe suggesting how easy it is to, to, think ideologically along mm-hmm. with the logic that, that underwrites mm. those, that, those lines, right? Mm-hmm. Black people get stopped regularly to show they have university ID by the ones in cars. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, there's so much going on in, the, in these lines yeah. for me. Um, you know, the police stop, I think, in the era of Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. um, we don't have to 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 articulate this the 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 serious stakes of of that right, for anyone right. um but just but it we acknowledge that they are very serious stakes um they get stopped regularly to show they have university id well i mm. love the line break here yeah because so- I wondered if you were going to talk about that. Was it, tell us yeah. about what, what, so the line break is between the word university and the abbreviation ID. Okay. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. There's this way that um, you can, the line suggests something to uh, like to show they have universality uh, <laughs> as uh-huh. opposed to, yeah. um, I mean, we're talking about, and I guess it should be mentioned. I mean, um, I think this is a poem about, I'm, this may be apocryphal, but I feel like I've heard Ed say that this was a poem about a, um, uh, a basically a campus green at Rutgers uh-huh. Newark, oh, you know, okay. um, or or uh, it's some city campus, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's not just a park. We're, we've got campus mounted police. The university right. is 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 here, um, and and suddenly the the sort of the issue of boundaries is is brought into relief as a, as at least in part, uh, a town gown boundary, a racial right. boundary, uh, and the overlap right. between those two things, right? right. Um, that black people, um, again, in the case of poetry are always being asked to show that they have universality, um, um, that, that, that they can write something that, um, that speaks to or for everyone, whatever the, the lyric speaker is supposed to do. Um, and, and I hear that being at least made possible to think about with that line break. Um, yeah, that's so nice. And the, the, then when we get ID, um, you can start to think about who, who has universal ID, you know, how does whiteness function as, um, a, a badge, a visible badge, right? Um, you know, we can talk about visible and invisible, but a visible badge of belonging anywhere, uh-huh. anywhere and everywhere. Uh-huh. So, so one might say, right? Yeah. Um, who doesn't? Who has to have an, a university affiliation? Who might right. not belong to the university and yet not be precluded from entering this park? This right. This, um, paradise, right? And, and right. So whose um, identification, not just in the sense of um, like the card that you carry in your wallet, but your identity, 
um, counts as universal versus who who gets thought of as having a kind of racialized identity, you know, you know, so, so that, you know, one of the things about whiteness is that it gets to sort of pretend that it's not a racialized position in any way, right. That it's just the kind of default or standard one Um, that feels really um, present to me in those lines. I wonder what's at stake. I mean, I guess it emerges somewhat later on as we go, um, in the business of the mounted police versus the ones in cars. Um, you know, I guess the mounted police, uh, I'm just going to speculate here and you tell me what resonates or if you have something um, different or better to offer, but like the mounted police suggests a kind of, um, retro like a nostalgic or like a like an older model of um and and then i guess for a poet who's um you know interested in um nature you know and troubling the distinction between nature and urban life the the horse versus the the car might be a distinction that matters but um yeah i don't know what does does this matter to your reading of the poem, Evie? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it has to um, because Mounted comes back up in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I agree with um, what, you're, what you're pointing to. I think, um, and remember, uh, City Eclogue was published in, I want to say, 2007? Mm-hmm. Six, 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, it's before it's before well you know yeah. well the several years before black lives matter not before uh, police uh, of pullovers course. right <laughs> it Sadly. goes without saying yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um you'd have to go before, pretty far back <laughs> you'd, you'd have to go before police <laughs> right right um but uh but yeah so the it, it's it's at a moment before our um our contemporary hyper consciousness of, yeah. of these things. And um, also before social media makes, mm-hmm. I think some of these kind of campus located um, right. uh, policing issues, uh, common knowledge or on puts right. them on the radar. So there's right. this way that I think at that point though, the, the idea of, of being stopped by the police would suggest instantly in a car, you know, for some right. kind of a moving violation. Gotcha. Um, here we've we've got um, police on horseback stopping mm-hmm. pedestrians. That's the implication, right? Right. Um, yeah. So and then and then so after the um, the kind of plain spokenness of um, most of the second stanza mm-hmm. at the at the tail end of that second stanza. So the last line of that stanza is ID by the ones in cars. Then we get, I think it's, <laughs> yeah, it's the only semicolon in the poem. There's a semicolon. And then the words, the auspice, line break, section, uh, stanza break. So the mm-hmm. auspice of the animal mounted doesn't fly. Love um, that line. Oh my God. I I'm hearing it doesn't fly like, um, you know, like a kind of idiomatic, um, oh, that's not going to fly, you know, like exactly. that doesn't work or that's not going to, yeah. But but then is there also some kind of 
witty allusion here to like a, a winged horse or something, or I don't know. I, yeah. I think so. I mean, yeah. and, and maybe not in a more specific sense than that, but it, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's the buried or not so buried joke that um, mm-hmm. the, the animal mounted doesn't fly. Horses literally don't fly right. except in myth. Uh-huh. Um, Pegasus, a, a solid white horse with yeah. wings. Um, yeah can fly. And so I think it brings in this idea of, um, uh, you know, uh, the horse of the gods, right? It it brings in myth, which has, um, which maybe foreshadows the the word lie that comes later. Mm -hmm. And it brings in the idea of uh, divinity or, you know, the gods. Um, I think there's, what I know about the, uh, about the mounted, you know, police uh, is is not much, but mm-hmm. my understanding is that one reason for mounted police in urban context is to elevate them. Um, yes, for surveillance, they can see over people, uh-huh. right? Um, you know, and they are also used in crowd control because it's you you can might feel like you can break through a wall of men standing, but right. with horses, it it yes. presents different dangers, and so. Yes, um, but, they would form a wall with mounted police and 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 move crowds back like that. So the back well, up starts to to come yes, back. Yes, I see. <laughs> that makes that that helps. It makes um, it's really useful context to have. And as you were talking, Evie, I just want to um, confess to something here, which is that I was shocked as I was looking at the poem and I realized something which I had not noticed, <laughs> which is that this poem is a sonnet. This poem is a sonnet. Yes, it is. It, it's, these, it's got, you know, it typographically, it, it slightly obscures that at the end because the lines yeah. get broken up and that's very interesting. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an Elizabethan sonnet. It's got four quatrains and a couplet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these quatrains are rhyming, right? So if people, you know, in some cases, it's a kind of slant rhyme or near, you know, near rhyme. But in case you're not hearing it in the first stanza, it's, a B B A, so poetry and security, the first and fourth lines, and the middle lines are crossed and lost. Yeah. In the second stanza, police and auspice are a kind of rhyme. You know, it's a near rhyme. Regularly yeah. in university, those, you know, again, a kind of slant rhyme, I think, in the middle of that stanza. Exactly. But then I was hearing it really in um of the animal mounted doesn't fly, is that fly is gonna rhyme with lie, and nature Straight and divestiture, on. yeah, mm-hmm. are the are the internal line. Okay. So, um, yeah, how, how, you know, I don't know. What does that mean? I, you know, your, your, um, your poetry professor missed it. It's, it's a sonnet. Yeah. (laughs) This is the thing. Ed Roberson writes so many sonnets, um, Mm -hmm. and they are, each one of them might have a very different, um, form, visual form that, and, um, and subtlety of rhyme that mm-hmm. helps to um, uh, to to make that form less immediately noticeable than it would be, um, right? You know, in in other people's hands. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, I love that. I you know that is that is part of um, the. I was going to say the joke of the poem, but it, it's a. Mm. Joke serious that's deadly joke. serious, yeah. very serious, and you know my taste is towards jokes that are deadly serious. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, um, I think. Let's see. Um, 
one, well, I think it will become clear what, mm-hmm. what is happening with the sonnet as we get a little bit further down into the, um, the sestet. Well, let's, let's, let's do that because, um, I mean, unless, unless there's something you want to say before we, we get there, but the, um, you know, to look at the poem on the page is to notice like the way I was talking about it before was we have these two quatrains and then things get a little, um, you know, more fragmentary, Mm -hmm. the lines just visually, um, get broken up. Um, so the third quatrain, like the, the second half of its fourth line, Mm -hmm. um, which would be the 12th line of the poem, like drops down, you know, a line, but that's, um, Mm -hmm. and then right in the the, middle. Yeah. And then the couplet, you know, that wants to end the poem where, which rhymes Elysian and gun, which is (laughs) fascinating. Um, you know it that the penultimate line of the poem is also broken up in a couple different ways so line a line drops down and then there's a kind of caesura between breasts of field and elysian at the end of the line um and um so yeah i don't know um evie i guess what i what i would ask you to do and maybe just at whatever pace suits you yeah um talk to us about what is going on in your reading of the poem that might correspond to or help us make sense of why the poem visually just looks different in its, in its final lines, as opposed to its opening ones. Yeah. So um, it's really interesting. And I, I, I keep going back and forth between thinking about that as, as a, a quatrain and a couplet versus a sestet, because mm-hmm. it's hard for me to tell because the lines are mm. fragmented, whether there is a, a full break between mm-hmm. li- the line that ends with lie and the, the mm-hmm. what would that be? The 12th line and the 13th line. Right. Um, but, but it is a, uh, you know, that hybridization of the Petrarchan and the Shakespearean sonnet that sure. lots yeah. of people like to use. Um, I think that this is a moment where um, now that we know we're within a sonnet, um, Mm -hmm. but have been asked to think about open field poetics as a, as Mm. a, as a discourse against closed form, Mm -hmm. um, we're being shown a closed form that you could say opens up a little bit. Um, ah, that it. the line breaks, you know, kind of open, make a, make an opening within the sonnet, so to speak. Right. Um, and, and are those uh, openings corresponding to something that's going on, like in the argument of the poem or the thing that, yeah, I do think that it so. Has one, I guess. Yeah. I do think so. I, it's hard for me to know how to like, mm-hmm. it jumps ahead of, of kind of a couple of things that I want to point out. Oh, good. So, um, so back up and do that. Yeah. Is that okay? It's totally okay. Yeah. I, you know, readings, everything is so organic for me. It's like, mm-hmm. and, and it's partly because Roberson's syntax is so tightly woven. Yes. Um, and I don't want to bog us down in a sort of a line by line, but. But back up as far as you need to. Well, I, I think we're we're in this this sestet. Um, we we've um, we've kind of moved on from the the joke about the the mount, the animal mounted doesn't fly, 
um, which is followed by, and I'll just read this last mm-hmm. bit. Um, mm-hmm. Really, neither do the comic cops. Um, we used to call them rent a cops when I was in college. <laughs> um, <laughs> nature and and here the the punctuation just vanishes, and we've got all kinds of sejuras, visual and um, things that point to different possible readings. It's a very very difficult section to read, but nature maybe colon. Um, life and limb gone through divestiture of place from point reads to the lie. What reads? I'm, I'm still not entirely sure. What reads to the lie of open breasts of field, of open breasts of field, which is B-R-E-A-S-T-S as opposed to the title B-R-E-A-D-T-H. Um, which and breasts, right? Which, which we also have to be reminded to hear through Olson's um, the emphasis on the breath as the the measure ah. for or the the means of locating the movement of a poem in open field poetics, right? Right. So breath right. is hovering underneath breadth yeah. and breasts, um, open breasts of field, Elysian, and I'm reading that with the mm-hmm. visual pause hopefully audible field mm-hmm. illusion. So all, I mean, we've got um, possibly a, 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 a sort of a definition or a statement about nature um, or a, a sort of a interrogation of nature. Um, I'm interested in life and limb um, as a, as a phrase that, that's suggesting life, and the body, but in a context usually of harm, like right. I was afraid for life and limb or something yes, like that, right. right? Or to protect life and limb or whatever. Protect yes, life yeah. and, exactly. Yeah. Um, the way the syntax makes me question, um, so gone through, life and limb have gone through divestiture of place um, or... Oh, there was another possible reading that was coming to me at one point that, um, oh, life and limb gone through, like uh, punctured or pierced, right? Possible. Um, divestiture, which I associate immediately with stocks and bonds and that kind <laughs> of, you know, of selling selling um, stocks or, or parts of a company and that kind of thing, divestiture of financial resources. But there's a, a secondary definition that um, is explicitly something like, um, compul- yeah, there it is, compulsory transfer of title or disposal of interest upon government order. So we've got this. This it's like what happens to Adam and Eve. Exactly. It's the expulsion. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's why I said Paradise Lost earlier. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's also the expulsion by the, the campus cops of the black person who may or may not um, quote unquote belong in this park. Um, but you know, there's the, the expulsion plate from of place from point. I even think of point as being the pointing finger that you see in a lot of um, visual images of the expulsion from Eden. Um, some of which have sword point um, as well as, or instead of um, the pointing finger, um, but there's also a kind of geographical place from point sonically what's happening with life and limb, the L's 
place from point, the P's kind of leads sonically into the lie of open. Mm-hmm. It, he's just, he sends you back and forth through these words and phrases. Um, it's just building, accumulating images mm-hmm. and ideas. Mm-hmm. Open breasts of field. So the visual breasts of field separated down a line from open and over a space from a lesion echoes the title, breadth of field. But I think we're also supposed to hear open breasts, um, mm. open heartedness, yes, uh, a, a kind of openness to each other's humanity, if you will. Like bearing um, your soul or something, right? Yeah. yeah or, or, but also being receptive, being able to, ah. to be open to someone else, right? Uh-huh. Um, the, the idea is that I think that the cops, the police, the mounted police are not, do not have open breasts right. um, of field. Uh, uh, they're not, this field is not an open place, right? The narrow badge number of the gun is another really brilliant and important line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've jumped over Elysian, but hopefully. Yeah, Elysian. well, even before we get there, I guess we <laughs> yeah. get like there's this sort of inversion of, you know, you hear the phrase Elysian field or the Elysian yes. fields, right? So this is the field Elysian, you know, like yes. the noun and adjective swapping places with that Chance little scissor between them. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and, you know, maybe that's done to sort of secure the rhyme that's coming, um, at least in part. But rhyme is usefully motivating as a constraint yes. in that way. Yeah, I love it. So beautifully put. Absolutely. Yeah. But I do think that that open breasts gets to echo visually the idea of the badge number, right? It's such a mm-hmm. weird phrase, the narrow. Yes. So the whole last line is just completely bizarre. And that's why I said I don't have a definitive reading. <laughs> what is the nor relating back to? I mean, we have to go yes. way back to get to a neither. And it's not in the same sentence. And it's not even in the same syntactic. Yes, you're right. Thread, if you will. I, I just, I really have a lot of questions about the nor. Uh-huh. You know, but. The narrow badge number of the gun. Guns have registration numbers. Cops right. have badge numbers. I, that so was I my think, question for you. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? I, I think we're supposed to um, at once, we're supposed to see the badge number on the, the, the breast. Literally, mm. they, they usually wear them on their yes. um, um, shirt pocket, shirt mm-hmm. front, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as, as the thing that's closing off the breast, maybe. As right? though it were a shield, right? And as, it qu- often quite literally looks like one, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and and this idea of, of the defensiveness of whiteness against blackness, right, mm-hmm. um, is, is raised. But then of the gun, if it's not, a gun doesn't have a badge number. So we, we've got gun as a metonym for the right. cop. Right. Sort of and, gives the lie to the like guns don't kill people, people kill people. <laughs> well, like the gun and the person is the same thing here, right? There yeah. we go. He yeah. makes it the same. The the, the gun is is um, you know of the cop in the way that um, what's what's the the usual ha- hands are um, a metonym for for sailors on on a ship, mm-hmm. right? It's, mm-hmm. it's yes. and it's that much of the cop, right? Right. So, so here's, here's where I come down. 
I yeah. feel like what we what we arrive at with this idea of of a kind of racialized closure of um, cops, whether white or not, standing in for um, the defensiveness of whiteness, the 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 securing of um, this Edenic park from black people who can't show themselves affiliated with whiteness sufficiently. Right. Right. Um, we have this poem that at once shows us a closed form in conversation with the idea of open form, um, but focuses us on race as the real closed form with which Roberson is, is um, concerned, right? Race is the closed form. And to draw the, 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 the circle complete, race, a life lived in, within the closed form of race teaches you to innovate in ways that allow mm. you movement within the sonnet. Boom, boom. That's just beautifully said. I, I mean, I couldn't possibly add anything to that. Um, Evie, this is, um, I mean, it's, you said you didn't have anything definitive to get to, but that's an exhilarating reading um, that you've we just offered us. It. We got to it. Yes, we did. <laughs> um, yeah. And it makes, you know, I guess one maybe very last thought is that it, if what the cops are doing here is this sort of exclusionary policing that's, that's expelling um, the black people from the, the campus green um, in order to make it safe. If that, if we're being asked to read that as a kind of resonance or double image with the Edenic story, Mm -hmm. then by those lights, you know, the only humans in the Eden story are the ones who get kicked out, right? So it's like the black people are, you know, <laughs> have the humanity and what's left inside the green is this kind of um, perhaps divine, judged by its own terms, but like inhuman space that's left over, you know, once once the people are gone. That is such a brilliant um um, reading. I, I love that. And you send me back to the animal mounted. Yeah. The police then could be read as the animal yeah. mounted on the like horse. Like they're centaurs right? or something. Exactly. Yes, right. Yeah. But I wouldn't have thought of that if you hadn't said that. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's why talking is fun because there's so the much best. I wouldn't have thought about without your telling me. Um, Evie Shockley, this is such a thrill. Um, and um, I think the poem is short enough and um, and interesting and dense enough that it might merit, just before we go, one last reading um, of the poem so that our, our listeners can hear it again in your voice. Happy to. We'll see if it comes out similarly <laughs> or not. <laughs> interesting either way, I think. Right. Open, back up, breadth of field. To state, for the case of poetry, the most recent open field I've crossed would have to be the block-long park lost in the midst of the security of local campus-mounted police. Black people get stopped regularly to show they have university ID, 
by the ones in cars. The auspice of the animal mounted doesn't fly. Really, neither do the comic cops. Nature, life and limb gone through divestiture of place from point reads to the lie of open breasts of field, Elysian, nor the narrow badge number of the gun. Oh, thank you so much, Evie Shockley. Um, it's been just a real pleasure and delight and education to get to talk with you. And I so appreciate you making the time. I am really honored to, to, to come into this series, um, the conversations you've been having with lots of people whose work I respect, including your own. Um, you know, this is, this is uh, a real joy. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you listeners uh, for making it with us. And um, we will be um, back with new conversations soon. Be well, everyone.